Today's reading is taken from Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25. That's Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25, and that can be found on your Pew Bibles on page 4. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Super, please do keep that open and let's, um, let's pray. Um, Father, we ask that as we look at the Bible, um, that uh, the words on the page would, be, uh, would make sense and that you would speak them into our lives, into our lives as a church family as well, that we might be instructed and led and guided and enriched by your word. Brother, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, for this series we've been doing in Genesis, we've um, been looking at the same sort of structure each week, the same sort of outline to take us through it, that God gives good gifts to us, God makes good choices for us, and God has good purposes in that. And so uh, this week, as we think about God's gift of marriage, it's a good gift. Uh, we, in Genesis 2, we're zooming in on the creation of the first people. It's like a flashback in a film uh, to what's already happened in Genesis 1. Uh, and in Genesis 2, we get some more details. So, Genesis 1, verse 28, God commissions the human race to fill the earth and rule over it. But zoom in to chapter 2, verse 18, and there's only one human being. And he's alone. And it's the first thing in the account that's not good. It's not good to be lonely. We all know that. And also, filling the earth is going to be a bit of a challenge if there's only one of you to do it. But God isn't caught out by any of that. <laughs> it's rather what's happening is this, uh, as uh, the narrator of Genesis tells us this story, he's telling us about the relationship between God and humanity, that actually the first people, the first man, discovered what it is to be in relationship with God that as soon as a need appeared, that he was aware of, God already had a plan to meet that need. 
Now we know, of course, that God has made us male and female. Chapter 1 also tells us that. But here in chapter 2, the first man discovers why it's so good. And if you flash forward to the bit in it, uh, that's uh, set out differently to uh, verse 23, it's a, a poem, a sort of poetic thing in, in, in Hebrew. And as Adam says, this now is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's not perhaps the greatest poem that's ever been written in literature, but it is the first one, and it's spontaneous and heartfelt. Adam is really excited to meet the woman who will be his wife and his helper in filling the earth and ruling over it. Um, perhaps like me, uh, you're, uh, you like uh, something a bit sentimental. Um, I confess to doing that and so uh, if you want the science it's not here on the page but somehow God has done some uh, he's taken the DNA out of Adam's rib and uh, he's done uh, the first human cloning and he's uh, very clever he didn't make another Adam he made a woman to go with the man and as with the whole of this section the science isn't there on the page but there's an account of the fact that ultimately you and I are not cosmic accidents we are made by God precious to him, made in his image. And as I say, the sentimental way to think about this is that woman was not made out of Adam's head to rule over him, or out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal to him, and close to his heart to be loved by him. I like that, it's kind of sweet. God gives good gifts to us, and marriage is very much one of them. God makes good choices for us. So if we go back to verse 18 and uh, the experience there of uh, Adam in, uh, in the garden, God designed him, God designed you, me, so that we need other people in our lives. It said man's best friend is a dog because of their dogged commitment to their master through thick and thin, pun intended, But no matter how wonderful a pet you have, no matter how well you get on with animals and how much you love animals, you need people. I need people. We all do. It applies to a single and married. Jesus, we know, was single. He he chose 12 disciples, though. And if if you read in the Gospels what he said to them as he chose them, he chose them, first of all, to be with him. He chose companionship, a a team of people around him. And that, it's a model for church, for every healthy church should be a place of friendship, of belonging, of extended family for single and married people. Because it's not good for any of us to be alone. In the midst of that, every healthy marriage should be a deep friendship which overflows to a whole network of friendships Uh, from that kind of secure place that that couple have. Starting with their own family, of course, but not stopping there. So that actually a healthy marriage has become the sort of building block of community. That's the vision. God made us for relationships. He He chose that even the most reclusive person, and we could probably name the most reclusive person we can think of, but even that person needs human contact. We're made that way. He's chosen that for us. And God has good purposes in that. Because, um, as we've seen already, as we looked at Genesis, you and I are made in God's image, which means you and I have a striking similarity to the living God. 
God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit, eternally in a relationship of love in himself. He is community, one God, three persons eternally loving each other. And when he made you and me in his likeness, he made you and me for relationships with other people because that's who God is. He is the God who is love. So why did, you know, why did God make us male and female? Was it just to keep things interesting, spice things up a bit in life? Well, I'm sure it does do that, doesn't it? But it's to do with this priority of love. That we should learn to love like he is love and that we should be lovers because he is a lover. So in the Old Testament, as the Bible starts to speak about God, there are various uh, various analogies used for him, various uh, pictures and images. Uh, He's uh, a shepherd for sheep uh, with his people. Uh, He's a mother bear with her cubs. Uh, He's a king with subjects. But the big one that keeps getting returned to is that God's like a, a husband with his wife. That's God and his people. Uh, A bridegroom rejoices over his bride. God loves his people and wants her. So it is that when Israel goes wrong and follows other gods and and commits all kinds of sins and goes away from God, it's called adultery, unfaithfulness to God. Listen with me to the language, the passion of Ezekiel chapter 16. I pass by. And when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck and a beautiful crown on your head. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favours on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. And it goes on. See how powerful that language is, that image is. God's love for his people is like the desire of a husband and wife for one another. In the New Testament, um, Jesus is introduced in the Gospels uh, early on as the bridegroom, the one who fulfills all that Old Testament hope. And when Ephesians talks about marriage, it it goes back to what we've got in front of us, verse 24, that um, when uh, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, they become one flesh. There's that deepest possible union. But actually, Ephesians says that points to the ultimate union of Jesus with his bride, the church. When human beings are linked to God in the closest possible way. And that's the overarching story of the gospel of marriage, actually. I went to a a fantastic wedding yesterday, a young couple, uh, Ian and Rachel, who uh, exchanged their vows. And their great relationship that they've already uh, had became a marriage yesterday. It became permanent yesterday. They exchanged their promises for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And that 
marriage, as all marriages, as we was reminded in the, uh, in the um, sermon yesterday, is a picture of the way that God binds himself to his people in a permanent way, in an unconditional way. He won't go off with someone else. And actually, what Ian and Rachel are discovering on their first day of marriage is that even more than beforehand, they can, are now fully free to be themselves. That they have entered into a relationship which is unconditional, where they've made those promises, and as they work at keeping those promises, uh, Ian and Rachel know of each other, they're not going to walk away. They're not going to say in two years' time, well, you know, the chemistry isn't really there for me anymore, I'm, I'm out of this. Or, oh, you've changed quite a lot, you know, since we got married. You have really bad days. You had a bad year. They're, they're not going to... That's, that's not... It's not going to break if they keep those promises. Now, they're going to need a lot of help from God to keep those promises because they're big ones. And they're going to need to grow in their marriage and, and seek him and get closer to him as well as closer to each other. But do you see how that relationship being permanent for, until death us do part... It enables intimacy because you can be fully yourself, no guards, no holds barred. You can be free to be the person you actually are in that marriage and then to grow as you grow with the other person and grow closer to God. What a wonderful purpose of God's. But, and we're going to spend some time in Genesis 3 next week. Ever since then, ever since just at the beginning, human beings have been saying to God, listen, we know better than you. Thanks very much for the gifts. They're fantastic. But we are going to do what we want with them, whatever your purposes are. And when we do that, we fall short. So sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, falls short of the faithfulness that God has in his commitment to his people. It falls short of the faithfulness that God desires in his people. And can you see that? Can you see the way also it introduces comparison and competition in future relationships that it's in real danger of of damaging, of diluting the one flesh union that God intends for a married couple. Now as we start to talk about these things and the way that we fall short. Christians are not trying to claim some kind of moral high ground. We're rather saying in faith that God's, God is good, his way is good, his purposes are good, so we're going to trust him as we walk out into the week, as we walk out into our lives, that we want to go his way. And when I fail, when we fail and fall short, as we will, we're going to repent and come back to his way knowing that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from every sin. You see, Christians are tempted, just like everyone else. But the married Christian will say no to the casual flirtation in the office because God's love's not like that. It's faithful love. The single Christian will say no to the fling because God's love's love is committed. It's deep, not casual and passing. Of course, pornography, even in the marriage, is, is in the same ballpark as this. It's just in the realm of fantasy and imagination. And again, it cannot help but damage 
and dilute real relationships in the real world. It's addictive, it's destructive, and those of us who are single need to be particularly aware of that. Can you begin to see, as we start to get to the detail of what does this vision of God, this purpose of God, how does it apply, can you see this is a very different vision, a very different story of what brings freedom and fulfilment in our lives than the standard story of our culture. See, our culture, I think, encourages us if it feels good, do it, go for it. Don't let anyone else tell you what's right for you. Just discover it and explore it and experiment and go for it. But you see, God, our maker, knows us. He made us. He loves us. And he's made decisions for us. He chose that we should be sexual. He chose that. His good purpose was that either being part of a good marriage or by being around good marriages, we would see the kind of relationship he wants with us as his church. That committed, total, unconditional relationship that he has with us through Jesus Christ. And freedom and fulfilment, whether we're married or single, will come as we get in tune with that, God, with that purpose of God and we discover that relationship with him that he wants with us, which lasts forever. So can you also see that um, what's become the normal practice in our culture nowadays of, um, of people moving in together, either uh, before getting married or instead of getting married, can you see why that also falls short of what God intends, his purpose? You see, it's provisional, isn't it? It's saying, well, the relationship's still on trial. We'll see how it goes. It doesn't go the whole way of commitment like God goes the whole way of commitment in his relationship with the church. And you see, that's, that's why this matters. It's, it's God's got a, a purpose that sex should be in that permanent relationship, married, so that you can be free to be totally yourself. Because that is how we're loved by God in Jesus Christ. Now I realise this touches deep and personal things. Um, But when we come to God, when we trust that God is good, his way is good, we want to go that way. And if we find, yeah, I am failing, I am falling short, we want to repent and come back to him. Even if that takes uh, uh, years to change, we want to do it because we trust him. And so finally, can you also see from the way God's made things, why he says that sex between two men or between two women also falls short of his purpose. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 27, male and female, he created them. We're different but equal, different but compatible, like a right hand and a left hand. Um, We're different but we go together. And so it is between men and women sexually. That's not only true physically. It's to do with the way that male and female are are different but complement one another. And being male, being female, it is a different experience of life. There's two different ways of being human. And on their own, they're they're both kind of imbalanced on their own. But in society, when and in marriage in particular... When a man and a woman come together, uh, that couple uh, experience the two parts of humanity joined together by sexual union, which is what verse 21 means about being one flesh. 
that couple experiences it and we as a community experience it as we, um, as we see what it is when two come together. And so that's what God has chosen to be the right context for uh, us to experience the, the powerful, uh, deep and uh, freeing uh, experience of, of sexual union is, is in that context of a man and a woman for life and not in other contexts because in other contexts there will always be some kind of enslavement, addiction, some kind of idolatry that goes uh, with it. So it is that when people grow up and they discover that they're attracted to the same sex rather than the opposite sex, then like other single people, they are, they are called, um, uh, other people are single through choice or other people are single because, well, you know, it just didn't work out and uh, single for the reasons outside our control. Well, the call to all of us who find ourselves single is to be celibate and to invest ourselves in the kind of deep friendships, the kind of giving and receiving, love and intimacy that Jesus had during his lifetime. And to enjoy those quality friendships and being those who build community around us together. And you see, if we all respect that marriage is the only context for sex, it really frees us as a church to have deep and intimate relationships and friendships. Because we know that there's, there's one place, there's one context where sex is appropriate, but lots of other contexts where we can enjoy friendship and we can have a freedom because we know it's not an issue if we all respect marriage. It's been high speed, I realise. We've only got 20 minutes for the sermon. But can you begin to see that God's story is a better story than the story of our culture, which is just, you know, hey, if it feels good, do it. It's a freedom story, God's story, God's call on your life and on my life. Freedom from the rebellion that keeps us from God. Freedom for the relationship with him we're made for and which satisfies our souls at the deepest level. And freedom to be part of a community of love, of deep friendship in the local church. That's God's purpose and it's beautiful. If you'd like to read more on the question of same-sex attraction, I'd love to recommend Sam Albury's book, um, Is God Anti-Gay? Uh, Sam is a, a same-sex attracted uh, Christian pastor who has, uh, together with other um, uh, people who have that experience, have uh, grouped together to do something called Living Out, to uh, help people to at least understand uh, why uh, he and uh, his friends are trying to say, no, as, um, as same-sex attracted Christians, we're going to stay single and celibate and invest in deep friendships. And uh, so I'd recommend that if that's a, a question for you, if, that, uh, doesn't, if it doesn't seem fair, what we've looked at today, then that's on the uh, bookstall and uh, uh, it's got a suggested price, but do just take one uh, if you uh, are interested in that issue, uh, if you would like to. And if you'd like to talk about more, any of this, um, there may be someone really obvious to talk to uh, as you uh, head back home. Uh, or as you think, oh yeah, I'm going to go and talk to so-and-so afterwards and 
get them for a cup of tea and just have a conversation. And what do you think about that? And what does it, you know... Uh, maybe you think, actually, I'd rather not talk about someone I'm really close to. I'd rather talk sort of slightly at one step removed. And I- I'm really happy to talk and to uh, pray with any of the blokes and with any of the ladies. I'm really happy to link you with one of the other ladies in the church to talk and uh, pray these things through. God gives good gifts to us and marriage is very much one of those God makes good choices for us to be sexual to be male or female to have the option of marriage or not God has good purposes for us in that that together as his family we would discover his love like a good husband for his wife and that we'd be part of a community of love where no one is alone. 